Hello, welcome back to Watch Party, Lord of the Rings, the podcast where we look at Tolkien through the lens of adaptation. Today we are continuing to talk about Amazon's Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power series, specifically the Vanity Fair article titled 10 Burning Questions About Amazon's The Rings of Power, where we get to hear a little bit more from showrunners J.D. Payne and Patrick McKay. Uh, and then after that, we'll be talking about Warner Bros. War of the Rohirrim anime that is slated for release in April 2024. We recently got another article about that from Variety. So some very spoilerific topics today. Excited that we get to talk about two different Lord of the Rings products mm-hmm. uh, from Amazon and Warner Bros. Um, so I'm really excited to jump into it with you, um, my wonderful co-host, Jen Gallagher, a.k.a. Hmm, uh, you know what? You're Patrick McKay today. <gasps> And that means Michael Rowland, you can be J.D. Payne, who I am particularly excited about after reading this article. I'll get to why. But um, a lot of a lot of cool things jumped out to me. We did get some answers that we didn't have before. And I feel very reassured after reading this article. Um, yeah. A, a few things that stood out. Number one. They're not going totally haywire with CGI and special effects, which is something we've talked a lot about on this podcast. Yeah, and we suspected that they were going to stay with practical effects after the title reveal came out. And mm-hmm. th- this incredible title reveal that looked like it was completely CGI, that we're like, it's too crystal clear to be real. Uh, it turned out it was real and that they had gone to great lengths mm-hmm. to use practical effects to to create that shot. And so we were very excited because we thought, hey, that suggests they're going to stick with practical effects uh, over CGI to the extent possible. And they straight out confirmed that in this article. That's right. They said, you know, even the orcs that will be attacking, those are people in costume. It's not CGI, yeah. which is great. Yep. And they also paid special attention, according to this article, on finding locations that were going to be... Uh, very realistic looking and beautiful and stunning and not having to build sets, even though they did have to build a lot of sets, they would scout, you know, all over for the perfect location to make it look as natural and as real as possible. So that to me, we're on the right track already. Well, I like that tidbit in there about how they were hoping for the mines of Moria. They actually had mined uh, giant actual cave systems that they wanted to record in. And that was their dream to actually record in real caves. And they decided, well, maybe like spelunking, you know, <laughs> really expensive equipment down in the caves isn't uh, practical. So they, they ditched that idea. But I love that that's where their mind was. And that's what they were trying to accomplish. You know, that type of commitment to uh, uh, practical effects um, just really makes me uh, giddy. So I, I was, <laughs> I love that little anecdote. Yeah, you know what What was so great about this article is we just got a little more insight into these two mystery men, these two showrunners who there's very little about them actually on the internet, yep. and they have so few credits to their name. that Which caused people to my... freak out quite a bit, you know. Well, uh, I'm, um, I would say I was among those people of just feeling feeling nervous who are these guys what are they about what's their background you know they've never they don't have anything we can really watch to get a feel for their aesthetic or their taste and Mm -hmm. after reading this article i'm excited i think these are the guys for the job clearly let's talk Um, about how short their resume is for just a second i I don't want to skim over that too much 
Um, I think we have before, but let's do it again. (laughs) I mean, just just briefly, we have before. And I think the people who you had to be really, really, really tracking the Lord of the Rings stuff and this series to to have been in tune with kind of the controversy with the announcement that they were going to be showrunners. Um, And so people who are kind of just joining us now, these two guys, they're young guys. I mean, I think they're basically my age. They're children of the 80s. Um, and they really didn't have a credit to their name at all. They had an un, they were uncredited no. sc- screenwriters on um, Star Trek, a Star Trek movie, uh, and it was a decent Star Trek movie. But you know they weren't even. And the the way that screenwriting credits works, it, the way that whole system works in Hollywood is actually kind of crazy because usually when you look at the credits of a movie, um, it'll list one or two people as screenwriters. So they'll pick the primary folks as screenwriters, but actually the final script is usually the product of collaboration between a lot of different people. I mean, many, many, many drafts going through many different hands. It goes through rewrites and rewrites and rewrites. And so at the end of the day, you know, 10 people easily could have touched that script or more. And yet at the, the general public, when they see the credits, they only see one name on it. Um, which really is kind of a very unfair, <laughs> a very unfair yeah. system. I mean, I, Show all the screenwriters. Give them all credit. I'm fine with it. You know, it. Uh, yeah. who, watches the, who watches the credits anyway? You know, just put all their names in. It's kind of BS. Totally. And, and Makes they should, no difference if it's a little longer. Yeah. And then they can all list it on their IMDb page. And, um, you know, the, I'm sure there's like union and contractual elements to it. But it, it all seems very unfair to me that people who worked on a lot on a script would not yeah. get credited for that. Because um, songwriters operate that way. I mean, you collaborate on a song, you're going to put both names. Right, right, absolutely. So anyway, that was the one credit to their name, and it was it was uncredited. Um, but it's my understanding that through that experience, uh, some folks in Hollywood said, hey, these, these guys are really talented and sort of started vouching for them. And so their cred came from the professionals that they worked on on that project. Now, since Star Trek, they, they did do um, Dark Crystals, which I don't know if any, uh, Jen, I don't know if you saw that on Netflix at all, but that was a very cool project. It was kind of uh, a type of animation mixed with, um, you know, puppetry. And that was the type of visuals you get. It, it was like a throwback to the eighties. Um, and it was very mm-hmm, fantastical. Mm-hmm. And so, and it was, it was pretty cool. It was, it was pretty cool. So they worked on that. And, um, but other than that, they really did not have a whole lot <laughs> going on in, in their IMDb page. So it caused a lot of people to be worried because they're an unknown quantity. You know, why would you entrust this mega franchise that is so beloved to two young guys who are untested and unknown, at least to the general public? And like you said, reading this article gives us a little bit more insight into their thought process and who they are. And, and we'll get to it a little bit later, but they seem like really, really bright guys really brilliant guys really bright guys i think the most reassuring part for me and the most exciting part was the little section where um will it sound like the lord of the rings so they're working off of the novels and and lifting passage of dialogue you know from from the source but changing a little bit um i love the tidbit about them starting every day in the writer's room with a quote from the books that's so wonderful to hear. Um, but also finding out that J.D. Payne has such a, has an, a he's an English major at Yale, mm-hmm. loves Shakespeare, 
um, mm-hmm. loves studied Hebrew poetry, parallelism, inverted parallelism, <laughs> chiasmus, and all these cool rhetorical strategies and poets and prophets from thousands of years ago. He's he studied this stuff and um, and has a love of language and a love of text. And in the article, it talks about how they tailored dialogue to fit each kind of character. And they thought so much about the way that people would speak and how they would speak. Um, and just reading from the article, some of them will speak in am, some of them in dactyl, some of them will speak in trochies. Um, and that is, I mean, we're talking about the work of a philologist. How thrilled would he be with this fact that these two and one of them, J.D. Payne in particular, is is really passionate about language. Yeah. That is the most exciting. That was the most exciting part of this article to me, to be totally honest. Just knowing that um, they are they are really thinking about the script and the script is not hopefully strikes all the right chords. Um, yeah. But well, I, I agree with you. I think that that was the part that stuck out to me the most as well. Because that was, that was the, really the one thing that spoke to their qualifications and the way their minds work. And, uh, you know, to be frank, parallelism, inverted parallelism, chiasmus, I don't know what those things are. You probably do uh, because, you know, you're a, you're a Shakespearean expert, but um, I, I don't I know. I wouldn't say an are. expert. <laughs> well, you know, you're a Shakespearean actress, you know. <laughs> I mean, you probably know what those things are. I, I yeah. don't know what they are, but they sound smart. They sound like they got their smarty pants on. So um. they have their smarty pants on. <laughs> that and also the net, you know, the very next section talking about the themes that they really have a good grasp but on. Before Tolkien we go into the themes, themes, you know, you, okay, yeah, yeah. You know, you talked about the the language and how they're devoted to language. I think that's wonderful and important. I, you know, I wonder how much they're going to get it right. Uh, the average viewer probably isn't going to know the difference but you know tolkien was so prickly about this subject like they'll probably be trying their best but i I wonder how much they're going to get right and what makes me say that is so one name that we know um from the the previews that we've gotten is the little hobbit character the like you know the teen female hobbit character that we saw in the trailer is nori brandyfoot okay that's her name is nori brandyfoot and that I'm totally being unreasonably detail oriented here, but Brandyfoot to me, it doesn't sound like a name that actually is consistent with Tolkien's method of creating names for hobbits. It just sounds like they took existing hobbit names and smashed them together as like a wink to to people who read it. So Brandyfoot is just a mashup of Brandybuck and Proudfoot. Proudfoot. (laughs) Right. Right. And Nori is, I mean, I'm guessing, but it's, probably short for Eleanor, you know, we know that, um, so it's like a tip of the cap to Sam Gamgee's daughter, um, who's named yeah. after the Eleanor flower, uh, a flower, which I, if I remember correctly, was not present in second age, middle earth. So it's like, why would a Ooh, hobbit be named Eleanor? That is some, that is <laughs> some deep diving. I, but you know, and maybe it's like, oh, that's, you're just being, I'm not being, uh, I'm not being cranky about it, but this is what makes Tolkien so fun is the depth and right. the incredible coherence of the background material and the background details. Uh, right. Even if you aren't, even if you don't know those details, I think you subliminally appreciate them and it creates a, a sense of realism. 
when mm-hmm. you're reading it that everybody can appreciate, even if they don't know the details. And so if they're not quite getting, if they're kind of playing with it, but not uh, taking it as seriously as they could, it could end up kind of not working. Um, and it, mm-hmm. it ends up just being more like a, of a wink rather than uh, a genuinely created realistic secondary world the way that Tolkien did. Now that's a very tall order. No one can do what Tolkien did. We're all just trying our best and playing in the sandbox that he created. But um, I, I just wanted to bring that up. Nori Brandyfoot, you know, it's nice try. It's not it quite not right for, for me. You. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, yeah. And I, I definitely still have the same worry, but knowing that they worked with a lot of, they said they worked with closely in this article, yeah, they yeah. worked closely with Tolkien scholars and the Tolkien estate. Yeah. So you have to think that if enough of this and enough of these scholars signed off on this, yeah, um, and we know that they really cared about it, that hopefully it does translate. I mean, I think that Fran Walsh and and Philip O'Boy and, and Peter Jackson did such an excellent job with yeah. the script of the Lord of the Rings series, but then again, they could take the text. They could take the text directly from the book. So these guys have right. much less to go off of. They have. Um, and it can be harder to just invent. They're inventing a lot out of thin air. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in a way they have a much, much harder job than Peter Jackson did. Um, because, as you said, they don't oh, have yeah. a novel to adapt. They have a world to write a new story in, um, which in theory should give them more leeway. It should give them more forgiveness and grace from the fans, in theory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but in reality, I think we all know that that uh, they're not going to be cut any slack by by the fandom in general. I mean, they will by some, by us, for example. I think we understand the challenge that they face, and we're just happy to see people earnestly trying to create good stories in a world that we love. And if it's good, good. And if it's bad, okay. Um but you know there are a lot of people that feel differently about it. Where if it's bad, it's uh, it's a hanging offense, and a front <laughs> you know. Too yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's it's a really really tough job that they took on. But uh, I think that they acknowledge in this article the difficulty of this task. They fully know what they're getting themselves into, and that uh, and they approach it with reverence. I think uh, so. That was another thing that 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 I really liked. I mean, there are some quotes in here. Um, that I think are worth uh, worth reading. Definitely. And I love the quote at the very end where J.D. Payne says, we've been given something, a stewardship. People have been in Middle Earth before us, wonderful artists who've brought Middle Earth to life in a variety of different mediums and different ways. People will be here after us, but right now we are the ones who've been given this torch to carry to work alongside Tolkien himself in a very real way. So as you said, they're definitely taking it seriously taking this the gravity of this uh this endeavor to heart so it, yeah just i feel so reassured about these two <laughs> in terms of tolkien scholars now amazon has not confirmed which tolkien scholars they are working with we know that um tom shippy at one point was affiliated with the show and then he left but so i we don't know but i want to speculate as to who the tolkien scholars are one who i think may be affiliated with the show is Michael Drought because he is referenced in this very article. Now, it doesn't mean he's official, like he's on Amazon's payroll that he's working with the show. It doesn't mean that. Um, there are lots of articles, official articles with the permission of Amazon that include Tolkien scholars that are just Tolkien scholars. They're being asked because obviously Tolkien scholars are going to be asked. So just because a Tolkien scholar is quoted in an article doesn't mean they're officially on the Amazon payroll. But, but Michael Drought's appearance in this article 
which was like the official first look article. Um, they gave them inside access to the sets. They watched the sets. They watched the show. They talked to the showrunners. There's way more access and collaboration with Amazon directly in the creation of this article. It makes me think that Michael Drott's reference in it is consistent with him being uh, affiliated with the show. Maybe he's not. I'm kind of hoping that he is. He is a wonderful Tolkien scholar. And he coined the phrase in a, in a talk of his, um, textual ruins, which is a concept that I think if he is uh, communicating that to the showrunners is very, very important. The idea being that Tolkien created a world with such depth that was effective because there was entire kingdoms that were created and then destroyed that the current characters in the narrative were walking on. And so he called them textual ruins because instead of physical ruins, they're textual ruins within the world of the narrative and creating a world with such depth that there are ruins for the current characters to live in. That is part of what creates the depth that makes Lord of the Rings so unique. And so if he is a scholar that's working on the show, I hope the showrunners are taking that to heart. You know, even though we're getting the backstories, I don't want this just to feel like an origin story where it's the beginning. I want to feel still that there are ruins from the first age and from the years of the trees. I want to feel those ruins because even though this is thousands of years before the events of the Lord of the Rings, there are still tens of thousands of years of history that are before the events of this show. And so there should be these textual ruins. There still should be a feeling of uh, massive age, significant age to this world. If he is affiliated with the show, I'm excited about that. Yeah, I mean, he's published a lot on Tolkien. Mm -hmm. You know, an annual scholarly reviewed Tolkien studies, J.R. Tolkien Encyclopedia. You know, he's got a really impressive resume. Knows what he's talking about. Medieval studies. He's kind of got it all, all the credentials. So I'm sure they've got big guns in their holster, and Uh. we'll we'll see if (laughs) if he's one of them. Um, is that a big Tolkien scholar? Or are you just happy to see me? Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Forget I said that. Um, <laughs> that was great. Um, so this article, just to sort of jump back to the beginning, and we'll, there's a lot of little things I think we can do in rapid fashion. But this was written by Joanna Robinson, who, and it's written solely by her, and she was a co-author of Vanity Fair's first look article, which was published just a few days earlier. So the first mm-hmm. look article was published, and then we got the trailer. Super Bowl Sunday, and then this article came out like a day later. So clearly it was kind of a coordinated uh, marketing strategy where you know they were bookending the trailer with two articles. And this kind of felt like, even though it's you know 10 questions from the showrunners, it really just felt like it was extra material that Joanna Robinson got from all of her days interviewing everybody and everything she learned about the the show because you can tell just from the use of quotations it was not that they asked these questions to the showrunners and then the showrunners gave answers it was written more in a way where she asked rhetorical questions within the article and answered them sometimes quoting the showrunners to support her own answers it was it was really mm-hmm. kind of the structure of the article uh, that being said very very well written I'm, I'm a fan of joanna robinson now i think she's a great writer both this and the prior mm-hmm. article are very well written and she's very clearly a huge fan of tolkien um, yes, that comes through. Who, whose opinion I think I can I can respect and really put some stock in. So should we get into the nuggets? Because there are a lot of little nuggets here. Yeah, let's I think do we'll it. Be. Okay. Yeah. First one that jumped out at me, Ellen Deal's sword. We learn 
and this is a quote from the article, King Elendil's legendary broken sword, Narsil, which debuted on one of Prime Video's promotional posters, does not look identical to the one eventually reforged and used by Viggo Mortensen's Aragorn in The Return of the King. And they link to the promotional poster they're referring to, which, as it turns out, is the promotional poster of the character that we thought was Anarion. Turns out that Narian, which you know, was the poster with persons holding a sword, fully armored up with suns, sun symbolism emblazoned on the hilt of the sword and on the crest of the breastplate of the armor. We thought that was Anarian because Anarian is uh, affiliated with the sun, Isildur affiliated with the moon, which is such a cool uh, duality between those brothers, son of Elendil. So we were, I was convinced that was Anarian. It's not though, it's Elendil. And that sword that he's holding is the legendary Narsil. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, me too. I didn't, I, I didn't see that coming in the aesthetically, but um, I'm, you know, I'm so glad that they've incorporated that. And the Lendil obviously is the major, major important person character. So the fact that that is among the first shots, obviously, we were. Mm-hmm. I'm even more excited to hear who it is. It makes me wonder. We, I don't think we really had a guess or were confident about which poster was Elendil. We were kind of up in the air in that. Um, but yeah. we were sure that this was Anarion. And I was excited uh, about the idea of having Anarion as a major character. Major enough that he would have his own character poster. You know, because I like the idea of Hasildur having a brother and there being a closeness between them. I mean, you know. Right. I, yeah. I have a brother that I'm close to. And so like a brother arc would hit me uh, in, in a, a goosey juicy spot. And I hope that we still get to see that because now I don't know if Anarion is among the character posters that we've seen unless he's one of the other. I, I, I was took another look at the posters. I couldn't figure out which one he would be. So, you know, if he's still in the show, maybe he's not major enough because he didn't warrant a character poster. And that would bum me out a little bit because I, I think that could be really good. He could be still to come, though. These are early, early releases. A lot of it's from this first season. They're hyping that first season. So we can't forget there's so many seasons to come. That's true. Which they actually talk about in this article that they, they wanted to tell a lot of stories over many seasons that would all sort of come together right. nicely. So we we don't even know what's coming. That's a good he point. Absolutely be featured in another season all right keeping my hopes alive i appreciate that <laughs> yeah no problem <laughs> uh next little quick topic here durin so the article confirms mm-hmm. that yes durin the third and durin the fourth are both in the show this is kind of interesting obviously it's a symptom of them compressing the timelines and the reason this is significant is durin the third is you know king durin of the long beards at the time when Celebrimbor is forging the rings. And so he is a recipient of one of the dwarven rings. Durin the fourth is the king of the dwarves at the end of the second age, thousands of years later, um, during the final battle with Sauron, where Isildur cuts the ring from Sauron's finger. Okay. Um, so they're thousands of years apart. So, okay, they've compressed it. So I suppose Durin the third will still be the king that receives the dwarven ring during the forging. And then Durin the fourth, um, will still be the king at the time of the war. It just, they're compressing it. So now during the fourth is the direct heir to during the third. And I, I, I'm okay with that, but I, I think it's worth noting that there is um, 
a very important piece of lore that's being ignored here, or at least extended lore that you find. Uh, I don't, I can't recall if it's referenced in the appendices of the Lord of the Rings or not, or if it's just in the extended material, but dwarves believe in reincarnation. And mm-hmm. specifically, they believe that Durin, all the King Durins, they believe are actually the same Durin. Um, and there's a couple different versions that Tolkien wrote of this concept. One is that when King Durin dies, any of the iterations of King Durin, his soul kind of, his body basically lays at rest and his soul goes back in, into his body and he just, the same body will then awaken years and years later. Um, and there's another version where Durin will be, it's more reincarnation where Durin is actually reincarnated. So Durin is born as a child of some other dwarf and then the soul of this same Durin uh, enters his body. And so that Durin, every Durin has all the memories of every Durin that came before. So one is a reincarnation version. Another one is a version where it's literally the same body, but the body's like laid at rest. Um, clearly they're not going with either of those because they're making Durin the fourth, the son of Durin the third, and they're alive at the same time. So you can't have reincarnation and the other version where it's literally the same body. It can't be that either. So I, I suppose maybe they're just ignoring it altogether. Is there any way I they think, could they could still play with no. that? I I think this was a, I'm okay with this choice. I think it'd be really difficult to depict reincarnation. It just is. Unless you'd have to explain a lot or you'd have to use con- con- uh, a lot of effects. And I think... Um, there's going to be enough confusing aspects and lots of characters in this show. Um, I think simplifying sometimes is okay. But they wouldn't need to explain it or even depict it. Like the reincarnation aspect of it doesn't even have to be expressly stated. It just doesn't have to be uh, expressly made impossible <laughs> by their by their plotting choices, you know? Um, you know, why do they have to make during the third and during the fourth, you know, father and son? They could have they could have left that open and they could have hinted at it, right? Just oblique hints in conversations because we get that all the time in Lord of the Rings, sort of unanswered questions, oblique hints to, you know, textual ruins, their own sort of religious ideas or ideologies. There are references to that, to that culture, and that could have been left in obliquely. And that made uh, they didn't need to make it a huge part of the show, but we could just it could be hinted at that that is a part of their belief system. Um, so I'm a little disappointed that they, that won't be explored because, you know, I'm a fan of dwarves largely because there's yeah. so much that's unknown about them. So I'm really interested to see, and I remain interested to see where they go with things because there's tons to the, I mean, there's already tons of room in the second age and there's more room in the dwarven stories because there's so much that's unknown. And so I have, mm-hmm. I think there could be a way for them to, to still play with that. And here's my thinking. Um, at some point during the third dies, um, spoiler alert, we did at the top of the episode, but during the third is going to die. I think in the first season, um, we already talked about leaks from fellowship of fans where a dwarven King, which I'm sure is during the third falls down a massive mine shaft, um, and rocks fall on top of him. And then the Prince Disa sings a sad lament over it. So I think during the third is going to die. In the first season, I'm guessing even maybe relatively early on in the first season, maybe like halfway through, mm-hmm. they could do something where like he dies and then during the fourth, you know, maybe Comes a piece back. of his soul 
of his father's soul kind of like inhabits huh. during the fourth. Like he becomes, you know, the eternal soul of King Durin flows into Durin the third. So like they're separate people, but there is some eternal element to the Durin spirit that flows from Durin to Durin. Um, and they could show that through like, maybe there's going to be some sort of ceremony. Um, you know, when he becomes King, there's like a, infusion of Durin power and I don't know <laughs> I don't know how I'll depict it but they could still do wow, something like I've, that um now I'm intrigued I really hadn't given this too much thought but that yeah it could be interesting I mean I think their intention has been to humanize the dwarves a little get a little more interest in them by exploring a father-son dynamic but perhaps you're right in that they're going to stay a little more true to canon in that way. So that's that's a mystery. That's a mystery we're going to watch for. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's it's probably something they have a lot of leeway to to play with because as was confirmed, uh we might as well mention it in this article and it had kind of been confirmed before, but they have rights to only The Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. you know, Fellowship Two Towers, Return of the King, including the appendices and The Hobbit. That's it. They don't have the rights to Unfinished Tales. They don't have the rights to The Silmarillion. Now, that doesn't mean they can't portray things that are referenced in the Silmarillion. It's mm-hmm. it's more that they can portray anything that is referenced in the Lord of the Rings. So to the extent that, you know, the fall of Gilgalad is a song in the Lord of the Rings and um, the song of Arendelle is uh, in the Lord of the Rings. All of that material is now fair game, but only they only have to stick to, I guess, the pieces of it that are in the Lord of the Rings. So all the extended discussion and everything else that we know about Arendelle, everything else that we know about Gilgalad from the Silmarillion, they they probably don't have to stay true to that. They can take the piece of Gil- the Gilgalad story and the piece of the Arendelle story that we know from the Lord of the Rings and and that becomes their their touchstone and then they can play with, as long as it's not inconsistent with that, then they're okay, which gives them a lot of leeway to contradict Silmarillion. Yeah. Well, they can't, no, they can't, from my understanding, they cannot directly contradict the wider canon. Well, I guess, I, I guess not contradict, we know they can't contradict they can't the contradict. major arcs and like the, the major historical events, but I I would bet that, you know, we already know that they're contradicting canon in a lot of small ways, or not even small oh, ways, yeah. in big ways. I mean, they're compressing the second age into, I guess, a few hundred years instead of a few thousand. So, you know, to that extent, they are. I mean, shoot, that's contradicting the tale of years that we get in the appendices. Contradicting is a small, is a, is a strong term, but they are departing from it. You know, in the mm-hmm. uh, act of adapting it, they are changing it significantly. So if they're changing the piece of it that they do have, I mean, I think we can expect that there are going to be a lot of details that they'll depart from um, when it comes to the Silmarillion, Unfinished Tales, especially, you know, History of Middle Earth. People in their debates, when they're talking about, we talked about this in the last episode, you know, the short-haired elves or elves of color or do dwarves have beards? Everybody's, you have to look to the extended materials, you know, stuff in history of Middle Earth. People are quoting the nature of Middle Earth. Not only do they not have, well, nature of Middle Earth wasn't even published when this show was originally in production, um, but they don't have the rights to any of that stuff. So there's no reason why they would have to stay, adhere to it. You know, it's just not in, in the picture for them to a certain extent. Right. I'm just thinking of the quote where McKay in this article says, as long as we're painting within those lines, as in the lines 
of the things that they have the rights to and not egregiously contradicting something we don't have the rights to. Mm. There's a lot of leeway and room to dramatize and tell some of the best stories that Tolkien ever came up with. So we don't know exactly what that means. We're going to find out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, clearly there are some bounds set on them externally from the Tolkien estate. They are probably some bounds that they set on themselves because we know that these are Tolkien fans and they don't, they don't probably don't want to go crazy changing things um, to the extent they don't feel that they need to from an artistic perspective. Um, so I'm not, I am, I am happy with what we're learning about their, where they lie in the fandom. Um, they clearly yeah. care about Tolkien and, and want to do them right. So, uh, but I'm also making my peace with the idea that there will be changes because we know there are. How many different fandoms can you love at once? At Four Cats Boutique, there is no limit. Katie and Jordan have prints, bookmarks, stickers, earrings, keychains, and more for all of our beloved fandoms. Get yourself a set of Lord of the Rings bookmarks, one special for each in the trilogy. Maybe some Hobbit Hole earrings, a Wheel of Time sticker, or some Star Wars blueprints of a TIE Fighter and an X-Wing. You can even find prints for The Legends of Zelda, like Majora's Mask, or The Master Sword. Dune, Marvel, Game of Thrones, The Witcher, the list goes on and on. So head over to Four Cats Boutique on Etsy to get something for yourself or a loved one from almost any fandom you can think of. That's the number four and cats with a K. Four Cats Boutique on Etsy. Uh, okay, the next little nugget here, romance and mortality, just sort of a, a topic. This is a bit of a broader topic, but we know that the, I want to talk about the Bronwyn and Arondir human elf love story, which this article brought up again. And there's not anything necessarily new that we learned from this article, but it's something I've been ruminating on a lot. And we talked about this in the last episode, and I was really kind of gung-ho, not gung-ho, but I expressed a little bit of concern that by introducing another human elf love story, it was going to diminish the significance of the other human elf love stories that we know about from the Silmarillion, which I mentioned. There are a few human elf marriages. There are some There are some intimations of other human elf pairings there are romances there are romances there are other romances actually which well. are referenced in this article i thought it was very very interesting um that they that they referenced the romance between agnor and um um andreth andreth thank you i love that they referenced that particular romance um so there are romances but i was a little bit concerned because i thought hey these these pairings are significant and they speak to and are a way of depicting tolkien's view of the importance of unification of different groups um as being significant to historical peace and if they're just throwing in human elf romances willy-nilly uh, it's going to diminish that because it's going to it's going to diminish the significance of what we read in in the legendarium and i have i have completely flipped around on that um i think that a nothing in the show is going to diminish the significance of the written work uh, so that kind of concern is a little bunk. And also, for the same reason that I identified that theme as being important, I think it's important that they explore it in this show. Mm-hmm, um, so I'm glad mm-hmm. they found a way to explore that. And my biggest concern, the thing that I have liked the least from what I've heard, is that they're compressing the timeline. I, I don't think they needed to do it. I wish they didn't do it. Uh, I think it cuts off a lot of options. But the one of the main thematic things, I think, problems that it causes, is if we're not experiencing the second age over thousands of years how then are we going to understand the um how are we going to understand what the what the repercussions of mortality are yeah because tolkien said that the really the fundamental theme that was being explored in the legendarium and there are a lot of themes a lot of beautiful and important themes but at its core the legendarium plays 
the most with death, the theme of death and exploring mortality and, and mm-hmm. human mortality. Um, and grief as well. Gr- what, what does grief look like? All the, yeah, all the, the sub themes that are offshoots from mortality they, you know, that's what the legendarium explores the most, I think. And mm-hmm. if they're shortening this timeline, we're not going to see elves live for thousands of years. while mortal characters come and go, which is one of the simplest and most basic ways of exploring mortality right you have to see but mortality love, you have to see people die and like the natural, but natural the way that peter jackson did it in that in that elrond gives arwen this a vision of what her life will look like if she marries a mortal man you know but you right. my daughter you will live on um and it's so poignant and powerful right. so i think there's ways to do it I think they're going to get creative and I'm glad you've come around on this because I, I've always been kind of excited about this because there are lots of references. I wouldn't say lots. Sorry. There are references to this in the material. It's not unprecedented. And I think it's an important theme to see depicted. Yeah. I was thinking about Finrod's Finrod had a romance with a human woman and they were never married but that was a really tragic outcome because, you know, he had to leave at some point and they were never really able to be together. Um I think I think you're thinking of Agnar and and um No and did Finrod? I don't think so. No, no, no. I really think Finrod did. Okay. Stay tuned for the fact check. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is gonna require a fact check. You could be right, but I, I, I could have sworn that because Finrod um, was friends with Andreth, and they had a dialogue of the, you know, the, a metaphysical dialogue about the lifespan of elves and men, and and the differences between them, um, which is called the Atherbeth Finrod Andreth, which is the, basically a, a translation of um, you know discussion between Finrod and Andreth, um, and that's a really that's in uh, uh, that that chapter follows myth transformed in um, the history of Middle Earth, and it's really 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 interesting. Uh, but Finrod was related to Agnor, and Agnor and Andreth were the ones with the romance. But let's do a fact check. If there is some other romance between Finrod and a human woman, I would be interested in that as well. Um, but yeah, the, that this is the reason that I am excited about Bronwyn and Arondir, or coming around on it, because I think it is a way to explore the pain and poignancy of mortality. Because within even within the timeline of this the compressed timeline of the show we will probably see bronwyn age and get old while erinder doesn't you know all we need is a single lifetime to explore that uh even 40 50 years which i'm sure that even though they're compressing the hell out of this timeline at least that much time will pass between the first and the fifth season and so i definitely think that we're going to see the bittersweet pain of their love and her death and they're going to explore that and that that gives me a lot of solace because even though we're losing something in the compression in terms of their ability to explore mortality potentially they're going to explore it through these two characters and we actually got a, a, some fan mail from a, a couple folks on this issue which is one of the things that spurred my thought process and helped me to come around so thank you um folks who who emailed me about that uh, you know who you are uh, but so i am i'm coming around on Bronwyn and Aaron Deer. All right. Next subject. Romance. Bring it on. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's a side romance. It's not a core. So this isn't just going to be, uh, 
you know, at no point is this going to be a rom-com. Yeah. yeah, not going to dominate. Okay, will there be wizards? We learned a little bit from this article. I, I think this article basically confirms it, you know, without mm-hmm. confirming it. Uh, this comes from the article. This is following a, a discussion of the Meteor Man. And so when asked if the Meteor Man might be Gandalf, Radagast or Saruman, McKay answered cautiously, well, I would say those are not the only beings, those names, in that class. So maybe, but maybe not. And the mystery of the journey of it is all of the fun, I would say. <laughs> That's as close very as you can coy, get. Very coy, very coy. Yeah, it's like very coy, but not really. That's as close as you can get to confirming that it's a blue wizard. <laughs> I think I think you're right. I really think you're right on this one. It all it all tracks now. Going back and rewatching it and sort of freeze framing some things mm-hmm. and thinking about how how they would tie it all in. It's creative. It's a creative way to approach it, and and I think I can get behind it. Yeah, people are gonna freak out about you know the arrival via meteor part of it, which is it is kind of crazy. But you know what? Like people who are not up to their ears in the lore are not gonna care. They're not gonna know that it's wrong. No, and also like, <laughs> like once he's there, once that thirty second scene of like you know the meteor coming across the sky and then crash landing. After that scene, we're never gonna think about that again. Then the character no. is there, and he's a blue wizard. It's certainly dramatic, a dramatic entrance. Yeah, but yeah, exactly. Wizards are kind of dramatic characters, that's, so I think it fits. I think the it Lord works. of the Rings meet cute, you know, between the blue wizard and uh, and Nori Brandyfoot. Totally, yeah, absolutely. No, I, I'm excited to see a wizard, if it is indeed a wizard, and and uh, how he's going to interact with these little hobbits and what a beautiful reference we have for that already with can through Gandalf and Frodo. Hopefully it will harken back to that kind of relationship. And I think they do want to bring a certain nostalgia to the viewers for those types of relationships. So it's probably a smart choice will, you know, remains to be seen. You know, one, but, one sad thing, if Meteor Man is in fact a blue wizard, that means that our theory, our little pet theory, that a blue wizard could be played by a female is not going to come to pass. Um, so oh, although, n- yeah, <laughs> no. Or at least not with this blue. There are two blue wizards, so you never know. There's still hope. There's still potentially another blue wizard out there that could come around and be a, a played by a female actor. But uh, at least this particular blue wizard, definitely male. So we'll yeah. hold on to well, hope. We've got but a our- lot of seasons. We got exactly. so there's time. We've got we've got a lot of seasons. There's uh, time. <laughs> and right. hey, maybe they're listening to this podcast and for, for season five, you know, this is enough time they can hear our podcast and then work it into the production <laughs> of future seasons. Um uh, okay. Galadriel. I think we'll learn a little bit about Galadriel. We already know that she's a central character, and there's been a lot of talk about the reimagining, or people might call it a reimagining. I think it's, you know, is it consistent? Is it inconsistent? This has been a lot of the discussion in the Tolkien fandom because she is portrayed as being a little bit more of a warrior, a warrior queen. She's displayed in, um, she's shown in mail and uh, plate, uh, you know, armor, and she's got a sword and a dagger. So we're going to see a more warrior oriented Galadriel, but we really don't know how they're approaching it. Other than those images, you know, how are they approaching this character, this critical character that is beloved? Well, in this now, article, they we know said, now we know a little bit, quote, and this is straight from McKay. She's full of piss and vinegar, and she's got a sword that's broken because she's killed so many orcs. McKay says of their version, quote, this young, hot headed Galadriel. How did she ever become that elder stateswoman? 
end quote. And then the article continues, what's more important than Galadriel's armor and weaponry is the turmoil of emotions we see raging inside her. Having already survived multiple attacks by Sauron and his predecessor, Morgoth, and losing her brothers in the process. We talked a lot about this last time, so I don't want to be repetitive or anything like that. But I will say that we were what we speculated, which is that they really thought about her background and her history and how a person would react, you know, after losing family members in this conflict and seeing just devastation happen as a result of Sauron and Morgoth's um, entrance into the world and and, uh, conquering of Middle-earth. How would she respond? How would she react? And and this is a really realistic approach. And it's not inconsistent. I don't think it's I don't think it's terribly inconsistent with the lore. No, um, and actually I don't think it's inconsistent at all. The more I think about it, the more I, I come around on it. You know, um she wasn't depicted as a warrior in the third age, but we know from uh Unfinished Tales and the you know, there are a couple different versions of her history and her backstory, you know, history of Gladwell and Celeborn in the unfinished tales that Tolkien was constantly reworking her, her origins uh, because she was really a creation for the Lord of the Rings. There wasn't a whole lot that he'd written. He hadn't really conceived of her very much until the Lord of the Rings. And so then he created this character, which is sort of a, a Marian character, like a Virgin Mary type character. Um, and he, 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 he refers to her in that fashion in his letters and, and things like that. So that's kind of how he conceived of her in a way. Um, and that's, I think a topic for a different episode. Cause I think he inverts that, you know, the, the role yeah. of the Marian figure, um, that is usually present in medieval storytelling and, and use it in one way. And he sort of inverts the usage of the Marian figure in the Lord of the Rings in a way that's fascinating, I think. Um, but he continued to work on her backstory and, you know, her early years, she had, she was a very, I don't want to say ma- like stereotypically masculine to the extent that a Marian fi- type figure is stereotypically feminine. Um, she had a very masculine backstory. She was very, uh, she had a lot of ambitions um, she, there, there is a quote either in the unfinished tales or in his letters where Tolkien said that Galadriel more effectively utilized the dwarves because she looked at them with the eye of, a uh, uh, a general, you know, she had a military mind and she was using it during the second age. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that was a quote that I, I think we neglected to reference in our prior, uh, in our prior episode. Um, that is the best evidence for the idea that she did have military involvement during the second age. She looked at the dwarves with the eye of a general. So she was very, very active. Uh, and she has yeah. an incredible, incredible arc. She had ambitions. She was prideful early in the first age. That's mm-hmm. why she came to middle earth. Uh, she followed Fe- Feanor or she continued to go to middle earth with the Nold- Noldorian exiles um, instead of staying in Valinor because she wanted a land of her own. She wanted to rule, um, she was counted greatest among the Noldor, except for maybe Feanor, and she was even wiser than he. So she is this great, wise leader who wanted to rule, who had ambitions, who was prideful. Um, and then she goes to Middle-earth, and all of her brothers are killed by Morgoth. Like, how would she feel? How could we honestly expect her to feel? Are we, do we seriously think she's going to be the, the same Marian figure that we see in Lord of the Rings in the Third Age? I think she's going to be angry really angry and we're going to see her deal with that grief and that anger and i could get down with her hunting down orcs um even if you don't want to see her as a military figure that sort of emotional turmoil that's going on inside i'm glad that they are that they have clued into that because that is key to her struggle and um i'm liking what i'm hearing me too and i think that we're we've got again we've got a lot of seasons we're going to watch her evolve 
and we're going to watch her get you know from a from point a to point b at least Mm -hmm. partially um turn into the woman that we see i don't i think they're going to keep many aspects of of her depiction at least from you know the lord of the rings and it's not just all gonna be fire and fury i i don't think i think we're gonna really see her her arc unfold which is exciting and also another reassuring bit in this article it mentions that Morphe clark is completely capable of matching blanchett's terrifying turn which is the quote from the article um and then which it references that's a statement and it references the horror film saint Maud, which i think i referenced really early on yeah. when we were talking about Morphe clark because i watched it and uh this article describes her performance as blissfully unhinged, and it it was. She's great. She's got a lot of range. Yeah, and I haven't seen that, but I, I've been meaning to, so I'll definitely see that before the show drops. It's um, dark. It's extremely dark. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she. I mean, she's a great actress and only positive, you know, I feel only positive about. Yeah, and I, you know, come. I love slow arcs and slow character arcs where a character really changes, and mm-hmm. I... So and again, I've really sort of changed my view on this the more that I thought about it. And this is that's kind of the fun of this whole process of talking about it and, and being creative and thinking about what plot lines they can do. Now I kind of really want to see a very, very different Galadriel from the version of Galadriel that we see in the Third Age and the Lord of the Rings, because A, I think it's consistent with the lore that she would be different. And B, it makes for a much more interesting, compelling story. Um yeah. if we see her and she's almost unrecognizable. Not not unrecognizable, but very, very different. And then we mm-hmm. see her transition um, into something closer. She still shouldn't be the same character at the end of the second age, which is where this whole series is going to end. But she will be closer and we'll probably see some some key transitions. And we have some great writers in the screenwriter's room um, when it comes to single character arcs. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got screenwriters from Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, which I think are two shows that have uh, that do the best job of this. Um mm-hmm. Of like of all time, frankly, yeah. the transformation, you know. The, yeah. So having those people in the in the screenwriter room gives me a lot of hope that they're going to do a radical transformation uh, of Galadriel from start to finish. Yeah, that is that's a huge thing that we're all looking forward to. We love her, and she's going to be so central in this plot line. Uh, another central character here is Isildur. Uh, and there's one little line about here. We know that Isildur is going to be a central character. And, you know, talk about character arcs. Quote, you meet Isildur like he's, and he's like Michael Corleone, McKay says. He's the young member of the family who has optimism and immaturity. Trace that guy to the tragic final decision rather than the mistake of a fool. His temptation, and that's end quote. And then the article goes on. His temptation and his relationship with his father, Elendil, is all part of the final story on the list. The last alliance of elves and men. So again, clearly they have an eye towards character transformation and character arcs. Mm-hmm. And that reference to Michael Corleone is very, very interesting. Okay. There are two little, uh, two additional topics I want to get through real quickly before we get to the War of the Rohirrim. One is we find out some of the other creatives that are collaborating on this project. First is uh, on the design team. Um, the costume designer is Kate Hawley, who worked on the Hobbit films, uh, and also Guillermo del Toro's Crimson Peak, which I really liked. Um, I liked the visuals of Crimson Peak a lot, and you know the movie itself was also very good. But she did a great job on the visuals, and I think the visuals of the Hobbit films, in terms of costumes, are are still great. She didn't work on the Lord of the Rings, but it is very consistent with the Lord of the Rings vibe. 
I don't like don't love the Hobbit films for a lot of other reasons, but um, the costumes was not among my problems with those films. So, uh, and she also did a lot of other very very big movies. Um, if you look at her IMDb, it's you know Mortal Engines, Call of the Wild, uh, Edge of Tomorrow, Pacific Rim. These aren't all like Oscar winners, but they're visually very um, thrilling films, and she worked on them. So, got a good CV, and uh, the fact that she worked on the Hobbit films indicates we're going to see a consistency of design aesthetic. Well, we already know the costumes are stunningly beautiful from what we've seen. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've seen, seen a them. lot of the costumes. They're dope. And yeah. they're they're very elaborate and detailed, and you can just see the care and thought that was put into those mm-hmm. outfits. And they really shine on screen. So it, 10 out of 10 on the costumes, people. Nobody, right. can com- nobody can complain about the costumes. Oh, 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 you sweet summer child. People can always complain. <laughs> sweet summer <laughs> child. I'm so glad you did the Game of Thrones reference. Oh. You're right. But I will not. You will never hear me complain about yeah. the costumes. How's well, that? In, in terms of design, John Howe, we know, is confirmed to be affiliated with, with the team. So that's also great. Love John Howe. Mm-hmm. Um, Love you know, that guy. I'll say again, I, I was hoping that we would see a very different aesthetic. Um, you know, and we're not going to get that. We're going to get a related but slightly different aesthetic, which I'm still happy with. I'm glad we're going to see an individual aesthetic, but I'm okay with it being linked to to um, Jackson's version of the visuals. And you can never complain when John Howe's involved. Just a brilliant visual designer. Um, Definitely. We know that Peter Jackson was not involved at all because from mm-hmm. this article, they said, Quote, we reached out to Peter Jackson, but between COVID and his schedules and our schedules, didn't manage to actually ever get together for coffee, but certainly would love to at some point. So that's kind of interesting that, I mean, Jackson never even stepped foot on set just as a tourist, you know, never talked to them at all. That's kind of amazing to me that uh, he is the creator of the Middle Earth that we know. And I'm kind of surprised that he wouldn't want to just poke his head in and that they wouldn't beg him to poke his head in. But maybe it's intentional. Maybe they're like, hey. You know, you had your day in the sun. Now it's our our turn to shine. Well, I think this is going to be something wholly different. I mean, it is it's very different just by nature mm-hmm. of the fact that a lot of this is is invented. Last thing uh, we want to talk about is they talked a little bit about what stories they plan on telling. Uh, and we've already gotten a sense of this from some of the leaks, but this is the first time we're hearing it straight from the mouths of the showrunners. Quote, we told Amazon we wanted to do four or five stories that are the big epics of the second age, McKay says, starting with, quote, the forging of the rings. And at the center of that origin is the famed Elvin Smith Keller Brimbor and Aramayo's younger Elrond. And Aregion Elrond is working to rebuild damaged alliances with the dwarves, including with his old friend, Prince Durin IV. Um, and so four or five stories, I, th- I think, let's just name those off. I think it's the forging of the rings. We've caught that as one story. There's the the Sauron sacking Aregion, killing Celebrimbor. That's going to be the second story. I mean, maybe those two go together, but that's two big epic events. Uh, the third would be the war in which Sauron is captured by the Numenorians, and then he's back to Numenor. And so then the fourth would be the downfall of Numenor, and the fifth would be the War of the Last Alliance, right? Do you agree with me that those are probably the five stories that they're looking at? Those are the major, those are like the the big events that happen. I mean, I don't know how they could exclude any of that. It would yeah. be a mistake. I think it would be a mistake as well. I mean, compressing that all into a shortened timeline of a, of a lifetime or two, it's going to be a challenge because that's two battles with Sauron. I mean, no, three battles with Sauron. You know, that's, 
that's a lot <laughs> to, to be all in Isildur's lifetime. So I, I'm guessing maybe they'll cut some of that out. Each season does have a lot of episodes, though. We well, the first one's only eight. Oh, is that shortened from... there? At one point, they had said there was going to be more. But... Oh, I think very, very early on, we had heard there were very, going to be very 20. Um, but... But no, it's, it's definitely it's definitely going to be eight. And uh, I think we'll talk about this a little bit later. I think part of that has to do with um, the nature of the intellectual property rights that they have in terms of mm-hmm. um, the scope of the seasons. And Amazon Got has it. been doing shorter seasons. But yeah, it's definitely going to be eight for this first series. I season. I hope that they expand that in later seasons because eight is just not enough. I mean, Listen, come Listen, maybe they're very on. long episodes. Maybe they're very long. Like I don't care. Give me 20 hour and a half episodes. <laughs> <I agree. laughs> uh, that's, that's just us, though. <laughs> well, no, you know what? If it's good, that'll be everybody. Um, yeah. But the last little nugget here, and I'm very excited about this piece, is they said, quote, all those stories will unfold over the course of several seasons, but the first season, McKay says, is all about the heroes. Quote, we didn't want to do a villain-centric thing. We wanted it to be about introducing these worlds and the people who dwell in them and the major heroes and characters, some of whom you know and some of whom are new. Season two, we go a little bit deeper into the lore and the stories people have been waiting to hear, end quote. So it it might actually be that the whole first season is going to be a lot of just world-building, introducing and establishing characters, and they're not going to rush into... We may not even see Sauron except obliquely through hints uh, or references until the second season. And I love that. I love, love that, love that they're going to be taking their time. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And also how very, very thoughtful and Tolkienian of them to say, this is hero centric. We're not going to spend too much time on the villains. We're going to spend time on people who are, who, the people that we care about. And and Tolkien did that as well. I feel like he paid much less attention to uh, the villains. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, Sauron, we never get like a POV chapter from Sauron's point of view, right? I mean, we you know, it never like cuts cuts to Baradur and Sauron's pacing and, you know, he had a really bad day. You know? <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> so I'm glad they're not going to do like a Sauron antihero thing. Um mm-hmm. Because that is very much in vogue, and I love antihero stories. I love The Sopranos. I love Breaking Bad. I love I love those types of characters and those types of stories. Uh, but you know, Sauron is, and you know, Sauron has depth, and they could have chosen to explore the depth of his character and his motivations, and maybe they will explore his motivations to some degree. But it sounds like he won't be a character. Maybe I'm pulling a lot out of this quote, but I don't think we're going to get a, a version of Sauron no, that we can. No understand and and empathize no definitely not no not happening and that's okay yeah i'm gonna get the heroes only yeah if you're enjoying watch party lord of the rings you really should check out our wheel of time podcast hosted by rourke tharmston rourke is a wheel of time expert and each week breaks down the latest episode from amazon's adaptation of the wheel of time with a panel of brilliant and funny guests who have never read the books if you've already read the wheel of time books This podcast will be fun for you because you'll get to experience the show through the eyes of first-timers. And if you're new to the Wheel of Time universe yourself, then Watch Party Wheel of Time is really perfect because there are no spoilers. That's right. Watch Party Wheel of Time gives you spoiler-free analysis and discussion of each episode. Check it out today, available on every major podcasting platform. Watch Party Wheel of Time. Well, I, th- I think we have uh, plumbed the depths of this article enough, and <laughs> it's yes. time to move on to the War of the Rohirrim. 
can I just say what a time to be a Tolkien fan? Not only do we get this massive Amazon series, we get uh, another movie from Warner Bros. The same team or part of the same team that brought us Lord of the Rings in the first place, and we're getting it in a very different style. We're getting it anime. You know, I'm so excited to see an an anime version of a Lord of the Rings story because this is giving me definitely what I want, which is a different look. Um, in some ways, it's going to look the same as Lord of the Rings, but it's going to be animated and it's going to be from a different animating team uh, and design team. Uh, you know, Kenji Kamiyama uh, did, and we learned this from this article from Variety, Kenji Kamiyama did Blade Runner Black Lotus. He did Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex, which are both very highly regarded animes. It's going to have its own look and feel. And so finally, I get my Lord of the Rings story that has a different take. So I, I what a time to be alive. What a time to be alive. I think it. here's the thing. For me, what is exciting about this series is that Philippa Boyens, who, of course, is part of the screenwriting team for Lord of the Rings, we mention her all the time, and the Hobbit trilogies, she is the executive producer on the film. And her daughter and, and a writing partner are also penning the screenplay uh, based on a script from two gentlemen whose names I don't recognize. But she did such a fantastic job that um, at least I have some confidence that the, sp- the script will be good. Um, the reason I'm not as excited about this is because it seems, I mean, the title is The War of the Rohirrim. It seems like this is going to be a film for those who would like a more action-packed, a more for action-packed sure. Sure. Um, conflict-heavy story. And that's fine. It is not everybody's cup of tea. I don't think it's my cup of tea, but I will absolutely watch it and I will absolutely, you know, go in with an open mind and, and it could it could surpass my expectations. I think you're right uh, about that. I don't think it's going to be exploring the same themes as Lord of the Rings. I don't think it's going to try to explore deeper themes. I mean, you know, you can explore deep themes in war. Obviously, there are a lot of very touching and moving war movies, but uh, I think this is going to be a little bit lighter, a little bit more action-oriented. And that's kind of consistent with what we get from the Rohirrim. Uh, that's being a little bit unfair because there is actually a lot of um, there's a lot of depth in the sort of Germanic feel that we get in the, the people of the Rohirrim in the Lord of the Rings, the way they're depicted. I, I don't mean to say that there isn't depth in those characters. There is. But in terms of the histories we get, um, the very limited backstories that we get in the appendices, they're mostly centered around battles and wars and alliances, right? So um, they could create a story out of whole cloth that explores the nuances of their culture and things like that. But because, as you said, this is titled The War of the Rohirrim, um, I think it's going to be just more action-oriented. And that's okay. That's okay. One thing we learned from this article, it is set for release in April 2024. So we do have a little while to wait, a couple years. But you know what? This whole year is going to be all about the Amazon series. We're going to be chewing on that fat right through September. And then for months afterwards, after the season ends, that'll bring us into 2023. Um, Then we're going to have season two. And then we're going to get this movie after the second season airs, basically. You know, there'll be a month or two break and then we'll get this movie. So I think that's a good good time frame um, for this release. And I'm sure we're going to get more and more leaks and releases as time goes on. Definitely. Um, we will, we'd love to have a watch party for this 
when it is released in a few years. So <laughs> we're planning ahead, years ahead. For those of you who are in it for the long haul, <laughs> there's rewards. One thing that I learned in this article, and actually I need to correct something I said earlier. So earlier I said that one of the screenwriting credits for J.D. Payne and Patrick McKay was The Dark Crystal. That's actually, I was mixing up my notes here. Uh, they're not the ones who work on that. It was actually Jeffrey Addis and Will Matthews who wrote the script that the screenplay for this movie is based on. So um, uh, Phoebe Gittins and Artie Papagorgio, boy, I'm botching that name. They're penning the screenplay based on a script from Jeffrey Addis and Will Matthews. And those two are the ones who worked on Dark Crystal, The Age of Resistance. So um, <laughs> Patrick McKay and Jay Payne's, their uh, CV is even shorter than I let on earlier. Um, but I included this in my notes because I like the Dark Crystal and I like that the creative minds behind that are also involved in this movie. So uh, I think we got a good creative team put together here. A lot of people just affiliated with the, the, the original film. Um, and also John Howe is again, affiliated with it. And you can see the image in this article. We get uh, one mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. first looks at it and it does look aesthetically very, very similar to, you know, we see this big Muma kill, you know, we see it's painted red. It looks very familiar to the Muma kill that we see, especially in like the return of the King, um, that, that the battle of Pelennor fields. So aesthetically it's, it's very, very similar. So we're going to get a similar look, but of course it's animated. So it's going to feel a little bit different, uh, but I like the look of it. Yeah, and you can do so much with animation. I think when we first covered this, I was saying I, I, I'm, it's I'm excited to see what they do because there's the the sky's the limit really when you're when you're working with that medium. So it could be, it could be a wholly a different experience to watch because they can just do so many cool things with illustration. So one little fun nugget. This is definitely kind of seeing how the sausage is made, but I think that we speculated that part of the reason they were creating this, when we first learned that they were making this movie, we speculated, hey, this is maybe a play to preserve intellectual property rights. Maybe there's a licensing agreement that's about to expire and they need to create something in order to preserve their rights. And this kind of supports that idea. Warner Bros. movement on the anime Lord of the Rings film comes at a time when the studio is in a dispute with the Saul Zansko, the longtime owner of Lord of the Rings film and TV rights over whether Warner Bros. has done enough development on the franchise to maintain its hold on live action and animated film rights. Variety reported last week that Zansko is putting its Tolkien holdings on the block, which spurred questions about Lord of the Rings activity within Warner Bros. So uh, this is all very, very interesting to me, at least. You know, I'm a lawyer, so from a legal perspective, I find this all fascinating. There was a big dispute between these parties in 2017 over merchandising rights. Um, there, you know, Warner Bros. There was a dispute over whether Warner Bros. had acquired the music merchandising rights in connection with their rights to make the movie. And Zansko was saying, "No, you didn't have those rights." But that got settled. Um, the terms of the settlement were not public, but there was a settlement, and I assume that settlement was documented in a written agreement. So I find it fascinating that we are here all over again with a dispute over, I'm assuming, the same rights. Uh, and this is just a few years later. Zansko is putting their rights on the shelf and they're going to sell it um, where Warner Bros. is saying, hey, you can't auction those rights off right now because some of those are ours. But this makes me more sure than ever that the creation of this anime is probably um, related to the nature of this dispute. They were trying to create something to make sure they didn't lose their rights. Um, This is obviously a very, very expensive uh, piece of property and 
it's no surprise that Zansko is trying to capitalize on it with the Amazon series coming out. There's going to be no better time to sell it. Um, to the extent they have rights to the Silmarillion, things like that, Amazon could be a player to purchase that. So it would be very, very interesting if that dispute is resolved. Zansko is able to sell those rights and then Amazon purchases it because then Amazon would have everything. They would have the rights to make um, any sort of Silmarillion story, Unfinished Tales story. So I, I, this is something for us to keep an eye on, I think. It is likely going to be resolved sometime in the next 12 to eight mo- 18 months, I would guess. I mean, these things, these legal disputes take time, but Zansko is moving quickly to try and auction off these rights. So it may get resolved sooner than that. Uh, so, it, And it would have huge, ramica- huge ramifications for future adaptations of Tolkien's work because they do potentially hold the rights to a very large swath of the uh, extended material. Well, if if this show goes well, Amazon show, I'm potentially very excited about them being able to get more rights to material. Um, but also, perhaps this is why it's taking so long to get made, this dispute. I mean, 2024, but we know this has been in production for a while, so that You mean the sense. show, the Amazon show? No, no, I mean this show. Oh, the movie. The, the, the War of the World Hero. I'm sorry, movie. the movie. It's taking a long time, but hopefully, yeah, that's 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 a good point actually. Yeah, maybe they rushed the announcement so that they could prove that they were uh, making material strides towards creation of a feature film, and which maybe you know it's probably this probably some benchmark requirement. They were um, announced it very early to try and meet that deadline, Um, but then it's going to take yeah a couple years to finish it off. So yeah, that that's a good point. Well, I. I think we've covered about all the ground that there is to cover and then some. Um, I think it's time for a little bit of a mailbag. And, you know, we're trying to do a better job about um, getting to some of the fan inquiries and questions. We've actually got a lot of them backlogged here. And so we're going to go to one of our very first uh, emails that we got. And we really love this one. And I chose to read it today because we had a little bit of news about the Blue Wizards. I think some soft confirmation that they will be included. And this is an email we got from Zach. I'm going to read a portion of it. Uh, But you'll remember one of our early episodes was about the Blue Wizards, and he wrote us his thoughts about that subject. Uh, Quote, I've only recently come across the podcast, and I'm up to the Blue Wizards episode. I laughed so hard at the song at the end. In the interest of pointless debating, I have to say I don't think it quite fits to have the Blue Wizards as ring raids. And that was was my my theory. Um, The main reason is they are undead. That is why Mary's dagger of Westerness is able to cut not just the sinew in the Witch King's leg, but also the dark magic binding his soul to his body. It was that, combined with the stab wound to the head from Eowyn, that was able to finally kill him. It doesn't quite fit to have an Astari as undead, and tends to make Sauron a bit too powerful, I think. He certainly could corrupt either other Maiar, but dominate and command them like they're immortals is another thing entirely. I think Jen's idea of female blue wizards fits completely. They had a very specific purpose, which was to sow discord among the corrupted men of the East. I have an image of a Galadriel-like figure reading the minds of the corrupted men and working out who could be swayed and who were too far gone. Also, it would help to differentiate from the other three Istari who are so well-known and loved. Plus, sex is just not really a big deal among the Einar who took different bodies, some changing form. It also wouldn't be out of place for females to play a major role in the Legendarium. I think they would need to have some sort of tragic end, though. If they had been corrupted by Sauron, then they definitely would have gone west to Mordor at Sauron's call, along with every other evil thing, and we would have seen them in the War of the Ring. Um, 
you mentioned a couple of other things here, but I think that was the meat and potatoes. And I, I think those are some really good points. I have to say, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think my, and at the time, my ring ray theory was a bit of a stretch. I still like it though. I still like it. You know, um, the Astari are, they are Maiar, but they are also incarnate. So they do have their, their Hroa is tied to uh, their Fea like a mortal man. So it's not, I, I think it's still not entirely out of the question. Um, I don't think we can entirely rule it out that it could be potentially possible for, for them to do that. Um, and I think it would be cool, but it is, I, I agree. It is probably out of left field. And I think it's um, one thing is definitely for sure. People would lose their minds. I think that uh, <laughs> if, if they did that, the, the level of hate mail would increase significantly just because it is probably so much of a departure of how people would view the Einar. Um But I'm glad that he's on board with our female blue wizard idea. I love his uh, image of a Galadriel like figure reading the minds of corrupted men and working out who could be swayed. So, so cool. And you know, it's, it's still, still out there as an opportunity. You know, we only got one blue wizard, maybe there's two, but I think that this blue wizard, my hunch is we've heard somewhere and I can't remember the source now, but the discovery of who this meteor man is and the direction he goes is going to be an important arc in the story. And there was an implication in the way it was worded. And I wish I had the quote in front of me, but there was an implication to me that his arc would be towards evil. That was just what I got from it, which would be consistent with a version of the blue wizards. Most of the versions of the, of the blue wizards that Tolkien had conceptualized, which is that they kind of, they failed in their quest and they kind of fell into, fell into darkness to a certain extent, whether or not they were actually under Sauron's thumb or just kind of operating in their own spheres, but no longer helping with their, their quests and, and being faithful to their, their charge is unclear but i think i think that they're going to go with a slow progression to darkness with this meteor man yeah absolutely and i think that's why people are speculating that it's sauron but we don't we don't think that anymore um but i wanted to say thank you so much for writing and we love getting letters from from folks who are listening to the podcast it's really thrilling to know that we're not just speaking into the void so you know please give us get in touch if you have um thoughts or theories or just want to give feedback Uh, we always really love that so thanks everyone for listening and i think that's going to do it for us today and may the wind under your wings bear you where the sun sails and the moon walks until next time Hey, Michael, I sent you a link that I'd like you to click on in the chat. Okay, okay. This I have an article here that I've been sitting on for a while. It was released October 15th of 2021. <laughs> but it's just the most wild article. And I, I want to read the whole thing because it's just so unbelievable. I'm not going to, but I'm going to read specific uh, excerpts. So did you know, Michael, that there was an official wizard of New Zealand? <laughs> I, I did not and know. And this was his career? Oh my goodness. So there was a wizard of New, Ze- New Zealand known as Ian Brackenbury Channel and he casts spells and he is a he identifies as, as a, a wizard. So I'm going to read straight from the article. This is an article from NPR 
Uh, Rachel Traceman is the author, and I just this article is just stranger than fiction. So please just go read it. I got a kick out of it. Uh, I'm just going to read part of it. Christchurch, New Zealand is parting ways with its official city wizard after more than two decades. His offensive remarks about women in the local government's new tourism strategy reportedly spelled his doom. Oh, my goodness. Ian Brackenbury Channel is known as the Wizard of New Zealand, apparently even on official documents like his passport. He's been on the Christchurch City Council's payroll since 1998, receiving an annual salary of 16000 to provide acts of wizardry and other wizard-like services as part of promotional work for the city of Christchurch, according to the New Zealand news site Stuff. But that job title will soon become, like many wizards before him, a thing of legend. Oh, my God. This begs the question, I mean, in real life, where wizards don't exist, what is a wizard-like service? Exactly. And it, it, it sort of goes into that in the article. It sounds like a lot of it is just entertainment. Uh-huh. Um, He's just cosplaying as a wizard for, for other people's benefit, basically. Essentially. Um, but it's just wild. I'm just like picturing this guy on dates talking about what he does for a living. And the woman just like, uh-huh. Okay. It sounds like he is very committed to his role. Later in the article, it says, it makes no difference. Maybe I'll read. Let me read this again. Also, it makes no difference. I will still keep going. He said, "They will have to kill me to stop me." (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) will have to kill me to stop me. What commitment! You just never think of wizards. I don't think I've ever heard anyone who identifies as a wizard in my life. There's obviously witches, and there's male witches. Sure. But wizard. This is my first exposure to a person who. Right. Right. and he looks like a wizard. The picture, he's dressed in full, he looks like, again, he's dressed in like full wizard garb. He's yeah, completely yeah. staff. He's got a sweet staff. Hat. That's a solid staff. And a beard. <laughs> anyway, I just thought this was so funny. And, you know, go read the article if you'd like to be tickled. And, you know, this is definitely a guy who blazed his own, his own trail in life. Oh, my gosh. He was, he was appointed in 1990 by Prime Minister Mike Moore who says, quote, it occurs to me that you are currently the wizard of Christchurch exclusively. Moore wrote, as a loyal Christchurch MP, I am pleased about that. But as prime minister, I am concerned that your wizardry is not officially at the disposal of the entire nation. The prime minister <laughs> felt that the the public at large is being deprived of this wizard's wizardries <laughs> because he was only affiliated with the wizard uh, with Christchurch. Uh, this is, this is beautiful. And another thing that I appreciate about you turning me on to this is this is filed under NPR's strange news section, which if you click on that, apparently there's a whole category of articles, uh, cataloged as strange news. And I'm looking at this and the, um, article titles are amazing. For example, for Valentine's day, the Bronx zoo lets you name a roach after your sweetheart. There's another one. An Air Asia flight was diverted after passengers spotted a snake on their plane. If anybody oh remembers that Samuel Jackson movie. Oh, this is this just made my day. This is such a good rabbit hole. Yeah, so this guy, part of the reason he got let go as a wizard is because he made some very unsavory marks um, at the screening of the current affairs show New Zealand Today. I'm just going to read this quote. It's not funny, but it is funny. Um, the quote is, I love women. I forgive. <laughs> Sorry. 
I love women. I forgive them all the time. I've never struck one yet. Never strike a woman because they bruise too easily oh. is the first thing. <laughs> And oh, they'll tell the neighbors no. and their friends, and then you're in big trouble. This <laughs> what? Terrible. He's, he's he's a nut. He's, he's a bit def- of a nut. He's definitely more Sauron than Gandalf, I think. Definitely more Sauron. <laughs> he could be the blue wizard that was corrupted. There we go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah not, well, Sauron's giving him too much credit. Not powerful yeah. enough. Yeah. More blue wizard. No way. Right. <laughs> Anyway, I thought you would enjoy that, um, folks, if you're listening at home. Yeah, go down the rabbit hole of this section on NPR. It's, it's delightful. Thank you. Or at least entertaining. Thank you.